6.5% since 2005. So what's happened to the statewide property tax? Well, yes, the statewide property tax has grown. It's grown by 46% over the past seven years, in part because politicians in Montpelier have shorted the education fund by $27.5 million. And who pays for that? You do. Why? We'd all like to know. So who's listening to me? Campaign for Vermont is. For more information, visit campaignforvermont.org. This message was sponsored by Campaign for Vermont Prosperity. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope you had a fabulous weekend. It is snowing outside our studios here this morning after our temperatures hitting 80 degrees last week. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. I'm really looking forward to our discussion coming up here in just a moment with author Howard Frank Mosher. Also on the program today, we will, in our second hour this morning, talk a little bit more about this practice called fracking, a way of extracting natural gas from the ground that some people are concerned will harm the environment. Also today, I want to share with you some of the incredible emails and stories that I've gotten over the weekend after the passing and untimely death of one of our listeners, Radkin. So we have all of that on tap for you this morning and much, much more. We'll check in with our White House crew as well to begin hour number two. Let me give you the phone numbers. 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And our toll-free lines, 1-877-291-8255. My favorite author who writes about Vermont is Howard Frank Mosher. You probably know him best from his books about the Northeast Kingdom, Stranger in the Kingdom, Where the Rivers Flow North. But my favorite books have been the ones where he's talked about himself, the love of his life, Phyllis, and in his wonderful, self-deprecating ways, books like North Country, and his newest book, the one that we're going to be talking about today, The Great Northern Express. What I really like most about his books about the kingdom is the way that he captures the beauty and the uniqueness of the kingdom without sugarcoating or romanticizing it. And he talks about the underbelly and the sometimes darker side without a whiff of condescension. Howard uh, writes on different levels, and he uses metaphors so effectively. Yesterday morning, my wife nicely described that latter point when she held up a glass of maple syrup and said, a lot of authors would look at this and say, it's a glass jar of maple syrup. Howard Frank Mosher would look at it and say, that's Vermont. It's an honor and a pleasure to give a nice radio over my welcome this morning to Howard Frank Mosher, the author of The Great Northern Express, A Writer's Journey Home. Thank you, Mark. Howard Frank, good morning. How are you? Well, I'm great. Thank you very much. I was thinking when you said your wife held up that uh, jar of maple syrup that uh, in the grand old Northeast Kingdom tradition, it might, in fact, be a jar of white lightning moonshine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well said. You have, in fact, written in the past about the the Prohibition area. I have. (laughs) You write early on in the Great Northern Express that you knew early in your life that you would be a writer. How did you know that and why? Well, I grew up in a vast, extended, and and somewhat uh, eccentric and Dickensian storytelling family. No one in the in the Mosier family had a penny of money, but they all had great stories to tell, from my uh, parents to my grandparents to the 
huge assortment of relatives who, who lived with us during my youth. And I can't remember a time when, when I didn't want to be a storyteller and a story writer myself. I had no idea in the world how to go about doing it, but that's what I wanted to do. And when uh, Phyllis and I uh, graduated from uh, Syracuse University, we thought uh, maybe there would be a, a blueprint out there that would show me how to, how to write stories that, uh, that someone other than Phyllis and my mother might want to read, and that might be in graduate school. So we thought we would, um, still not having a penny of money, teach for a year or two, and then... Uh, go on to graduate school and search of that blueprint for me. And uh, so we landed a couple of jobs in um, Orleans in the Northeast Kingdom in you know, Vermont. We, did, we didn't know what the Northeast Kingdom was or where it was, but we thought at least we could save a little bit of money and then move on. What we discovered here, though, in the kingdom instead was just a gold mine of stories that nobody had ever told before. And we've um, pretty much been here ever since, Phyllis teaching and uh, I telling the stories of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. You've written now a dozen books. I was surprised to see you say that you find it difficult for you to write. I think a lot of people, Howard, would be surprised to hear that. Well, I love to write. Uh, I've said, and I think I say in the Great Northern Express, that I... Although I love to write, I live to read. But each time I start a new book, I I find uh, that I'm an aspiring writer all over again because the the, uh, techniques and approaches that worked for the previous book aren't going to work for the uh, new one. And so my books, uh, to achieve anything like a semblance of of ease, (laughs) often go through between 50 and and 100 drafts, and they take, uh, oh, from four to six or even seven years. Luckily, I can sometimes work on two at the same time, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. But it is, um, I wouldn't say it's a difficult process so much as it is a very, very slow process. Tell me a little bit more about your routine. Truman Capote used to write lying down with a glass of sherry. Hemingway used to write (laughs) 500 words a day. So you say you write in the morning and the afternoon. Tell me more about that. Well, I, for uh, all my career, have have written on yellow legal pads, longhand. And then I have a a wonderful typist here in the kingdom who has has typed uh, each and every one of my books going back almost 40 years. Years, I find that writing longhand keeps me going slowly, and particularly with fiction, that's important because you want to explore every single option that your imagination, in, in my case, Mark, a very diseased imagination suggests to you. So, uh, again, it's a, a slow process. I generally write all morning, then I go for a walk on um, Irisburg Mountain across the road from our house up in the Lowell Mountain chain. Uh, in the winter, sometimes I cross-country ski up there, and I come back and write in the afternoon and generally spend the evening uh, reading and in baseball season keeping an eye on the Boston Red Sox. It's not a very 
exciting or or romantic routine, but uh, it gets the books written. Well, that sounds that sounds pretty good to me. Do you ever have you ever with any of your books gone back and wished that you had had made a different word choice, had not uh, or or approached a book in a different way? With every single book I've written, I've always wished that I had. Uh, had written that uh, better beginning with what probably is my best known book, A Stranger in the Kingdom. That's always struck me as, uh, in a sense, two different books. The first half is focused mainly on uh, my, my Kennison family, which I've written about in other books as well. And then the, sec- the second half seems to kick into a kind of a courtroom thriller. But there would be no end to that. Any writer could always say that about any book. And for that reason, I don't often go back and um, and read them. Disappearances is is a good example. The last thirty or so pages of Disappearances has has always uh, bothered me, and certainly I would do that book uh, differently now. Um, but uh, I'm glad I wrote Disappearances when I did. It's a it's a young person's book and a wild and crazy book. I wouldn't do it now, but I'm glad I did it then. But yes, I wish I had had been able to improve every single one of them. You say the book it bo- when you say bothered you. What do you mean by that? That it could have been better, and you know, that there's always a way uh, to improve it. But you have to get to the point too sooner or later with a book, <laughs> usually after five or six years, where you say, "Well, this this isn't going to." Uh, up to the level of Faulkner or Hemingway, but this is pretty good Howard Frank Mosher, and so I'll go with it. How could it have been better, though? <laughs> if Faulkner had written it. <laughs> On the Great American Book Tour, I went to uh, Faulkner's home in Oxford, Mississippi, because he uh, was and still is such an influence on my writing, and I had a somewhat eerie experience. I got there in the evening, and the guided tours of the of the Faulkner place had, had long ago ended. I was the only one there, so I walked all around the house and looked in the windows. But I couldn't get a feel for who Faulkner was uh, or for his characters until I walked into the, uh, the wonderful uh, bookstore in Oxford, Mississippi, that has a whole room dedicated to Faulkner's work. And as soon as I picked up one of his books and held it in my hand, I realized that's where Faulkner's world is right there. But I used to be disappointed when I finished a book and say to um, Phyllis G., this isn't up to the level of Faulkner, Jane Austen. And she finally pointed something out to me. She said, well, sweetie, um, there was only one Faulkner and one Jane Austen. You have to ask yourself, is this pretty good Howard Frank Mosier? And if it is, let it go. Is Faulkner one of your favorite authors? Absolutely. And when I was in... um, in high school, I was um, influenced by, by Hemingway, and uh, of course Hemingway's sentences are, uh, are short, and so I began to write short sentences, and my pathetic little shoot 'em up westerns and baseball stories that I was writing then, then, and then when I got to college and read Faulkner, who loves long sentences and for whom a, a, a short sentence may be 200 words long, my sentences lengthened out, and then when I really first began my writing apprenticeship in earnest here in the Northeast Kingdom, I went through a very bad patch where I would write two or three five-word 
sentences like Hemingway, and then a few 200-word uh, sentences like, like Faulkner. But eventually, uh, I, came to, uh, I came to my own voice. Remind me, I took a course on Faulkner. I'll never forget there was a book, I'm thinking August was in the title, where it begins with this kid in a closet, and he's eating a tube of toothpaste, watching people having sex. Do you remember that? Yes, it's Light in August. Thank and you. I think that's one of his best books, and certainly that was, uh, that was an influence on me. And that's another one of these books, Like a Stranger in the Kingdom, that... That, that tells multiple stories. It's little uh, Joe Christmas, who is uh, uh, part white and part African American, who's in the in the closet. If I if I remember correctly, I don't think that's a sound in the fury. I think that's light and August. Yeah, no, I, I, that's I remember that August was in the title, so I, I, I think that's right. Obviously, it's an image that really stuck with me uh, some thirty years later. We're uh, talking with Howard Frank Mosher. He's the author of The Great Northern Express, A Writer's Journey Home. We are going to actually talk about the book here, but I have a couple of other questions. How did you meet Phyllis? <laughs> well, I, I met her in our uh, uh, high school uh, sophomore English class, and I can still rem- remember um, that that morning she walked in um, a little bit later than I did, and sat down, and I remember, uh, of course, how, how pretty she was, but I also remember what a, what a sweet and lovely smile she had and, and still has. Phyllis has, uh, has taught uh, science and also worked as a, a guidance counselor in the Northeast Kingdom for her entire career, recently, uh, recently retired, and she's been a, a great support for me, the model for, for many of my lively um, women characters and um, also great support for her students and, and friends here in the kingdom. How long did it take you before you asked her out? Oh, uh, we were good friends in high school. We, we began going out in, in college, so it was a while. I was always intimidated by her. Uh-huh. It's still to this day? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to some extent, but Phyllis is my... Not really. She is she is my first and best critic, and both because she loves to read herself and because she understands the Northeast Kingdom inside out. I always show her my work first, and she's uh, my my compass for what works and what doesn't work in, in my stories. I, I know I know the feeling. Um, if you don't mind me asking, you've been married for quite some time now. How has your relationship changed over the decades? Oh, I wouldn't say it's greatly uh, changed. One of the things that I immediately admired about um, Phyllis and loved about Phyllis was uh, her her sense of of humor, and uh, that's just <laughs> that's just grown over the years. But to give you an example. The uh, first day we we came to Orleans to interview for our teaching uh, contracts, as as we pulled into town, two guys were conducting a fist fight right in the middle of Main Street, and I tell this story in the Great Northern Express. Yep, they were just all over the street. We I didn't think we could even get by them, so 
I can't believe I was ever this young and naive, but I was. I rolled down the window of uh, the Super 88 Oldsmobile that belonged to my grandparents that we'd borrowed for the trip from Syracuse to Vermont, and I called out, excuse me, but um, could one of you gentlemen please tell us how to get to the local high school? And the taller of these two gentlemen, uh, who seemed to be winning the fistfight, said, we can do better than that. We can take you there. And so without <laughs> any invitation, they piled right into the back of my, my grandparents' car, which, Mark, smelled like the Budweiser Brewery for the next two weeks. And they directed us down blind alleys and driveways, and they got us lost over in the Ethan Allen Furniture Factory lumberyard. Finally, they got us to the high school. I let them out on School Street, out in front of the school, and they went off down the street arm in arm laughing and the best of friends. And as we turned into the school parking lot, Phyllis reached over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, look back. And I looked back over my shoulder, and these two guys had resumed their fist fight right in the middle of School Street. And Phyllis said instantly, welcome to the Northeast Kingdom, mm -hmm. sweetie. Um, before I forget, whatever happened with the snake that Phyllis had, as you mentioned in the books, uh, Phyllis would collect animals that, because she was a science teacher that some sure. of the people thought she could fix. Whatever happened with her snake that you wouldn't allow in the house? <laughs> well, uh, for for years and years at, uh, at uh, Coventry Village School where Phyllis uh, taught science and worked as a guidance counselor, she had a six-foot-long uh, python. And the great uh, advantage of that was growing up with it, as they did since kindergarten. Not a single kid in the school was afraid of snakes. But the summer I took my great American book tour that I write about in the Great Northern Express, Monty Python the snake got loose and, um, and got um, lost in the heating ductwork of the, of the school. But... Uh, Eventually, uh, as, as Phyllis predicted, uh, Monty got thirsty and, and came out of the ductwork. And, and uh, one of the teachers, who I think was not as fond of snakes as the children were, uh, <laughs> found it by nearly stepping on it and was uh, very, very alarmed. But Phyllis came and picked it up and put it back in its cage. It was a very friendly snake, but... You're right. I'm not in love with snakes myself, and I did not want the thing to summer over with us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Howard Frank Mosher is the author of The Great Northern Express. You can join us at 244-1777 is our local number in central Vermont. Our toll-free line's 1-877-291-8255. Uh, Howard, you mentioned your naivety early on in your tenure at, in the uh, kingdom. I'd love to have you share with us a uh, story that you have about the bull that you purchased, uh, quote-unquote purchased, and while you're getting ready to read that for us, let me, uh, I'll do a quick live ad here, and let me share with our listeners, please, we encourage you to uh, call our friends at Green Mountain Access today. You can reach them at one 321 you can also find them, obviously, on the World Wide Web. That would be at gmavt.net. They are a division of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom. 
we encourage you to call them. You can speak with them about bundling your telephone, Internet, and TV service all together. GMAVT.net, or you can reach them at one 888 So how did you uh, share with us and read for us how you wound up with The Bull? Okay. Thank you, Mark. So this is from the Great Northern Express. The uh, the Great Northern Express is, is both uh, an account of the... Uh, somewhat insane 100-city book tour that I took uh, five years ago when I turned 65 with um, Northeast Kingdom recollections interspersed between the book tour chapters. And this is is one of the Northeast Kingdom recollections from our first uh, year teaching in the kingdom. One evening, out for a walk after supper, Phyllis and I wandered into Joe Sulia's commission sales barn behind the village hotel during the weekly cattle auction. We climbed up to the top of the small grandstand and sat down to watch the proceedings. Yes, here's a pretty little bull calf, boys, Joe chanted into his handheld microphone as a young Angus was led into the wooden-sided ring. This gentleman is out of the Kittredge herd up on Gay Hill. He's a good bull, boys. Start your prize herd. Yes, we'll begin the bidding at $20, 20 dollars 20 30 20 30 35 40 Do I have 40 I have 40 over there. Yes, $50, boys. 50 50 in gold, boys, for this beautiful little bull. A fly landed on my nose. I reached up and swatted it, swatted it away. Sold, Joe barked into the microphone. For 50 spondaloons to the school teacher from New York State. Phyllis couldn't stop laughing. The farmers and village hangers on and the grandstand around us laughed. But Joe said, any motion of the head or hands a bit. Ain't that right now, boys? The school teacher from New York had, it seemed, been taken to school. That's how Phyllis and I acquired a black Angus bull we had no earthly use for. He was the first of what would turn out to be a singular menagerie of critters. We kept a little, later not so little, Angus in Verna's barn out behind the house, where he was eventually joined by an intemperate donkey, two intelligent pigs, several laying hens, an orphaned fawn, a pair of very aggressive Toulouse geese, an injured sparrowhawk, a kit fox, and a tiny fisher cat. Many of these animals were gifts from Phyllis's students who assumed that, as a science teacher, she could heal, train, raise, and, in the case of the fawn, fox, and fisher, return to the wild anything on four feet. And that's what she proceeded to do. The bull calf debacle was all in good fun. We raised him through the winter as a kind of oversized pet, and Joe Sulia bought him back from me in the spring for exactly what I paid. But a week or two after acquiring it, Phyllis and I were back at the commission sales, hands folded tightly in our laps like Quakers, as the entire Kittredge herd was auctioned off in an hour. 
the elderly couple who'd been on their farm together for nearly 60 years sat near us in the grandstand. Once I glanced over and noticed that Mr. Kittredge was weeping silently, his tears falling directly onto his barn boots. Joe worked hard to get the Kittredges good value for their cows, but it was a sad, sad night. We'd been in the kingdom less than two months, and already some of it was disappearing before our eyes. When we had time that fall, we read aloud to each other, scaring ourselves silly with Bram Stoker's Dracula, laughing over the incomparably fatuous Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. But who would write the stories we were hearing every day right here in the kingdom? If no one did, they too, like the little farms and big woods of this last Vermont frontier, would soon be gone forever. Let's take a couple of calls. We go to Cabot. Tony, you're on the air with Howard Frank Mosher. Good morning, gentlemen. Hi. <laughs> I was uh, I was intrigued by Mr. Mosier's comments about the creative process and how he goes about it and, and his uh, apparently universal kind of concern that writers have about, you know, this can always be better and how do I make it better, that kind of thing. And I hearken back to something I just recently uh, saw. It was a video on the web from a website called TED Talk where they have really interesting people, uh, and they video them as they're giving their, their talks. And this one happened to be by an author. Her name is Elizabeth Gilbert, and I'm, I don't know her work, but uh, she, came, she gave a 20-minute discussion about the creative process and satisfaction and, and all of that, and she came to exactly the same conclusion that Mr. Mosier did, and that, that is that in order to satisfy yourself, you just have to be the best that you can be. And and she was she has a apparently a really well received book and her her worry was how am I going to write anything that's going to stand up to this and so there's this always apparently this notion of self doubt for writers and I thought it, I I was really intrigued with the parallel between what she had to say and Mr Mosier's comments really, really something interesting I'm I'm wondering if you ever uh, Mr Mosier are, are you ever you ever have that doubt about you know you've just uh, released a, a really well received book, and now are there any are there ever doubts about how am I going to write the next one that's even going to compare to this? <laughs> well, there. Uh, thank you for the for the question, and it's a it's a great one. Uh, yes, I have doubts about, about that and every other aspect of the writing business, but no more than about fifty times a, a day. I think. Uh, one of the things that uh, writers uh, try to do uh, to avoid feeling that somehow they have to live up to the last book is to make each book different enough so that um, you're, you're undertaking an entirely different kind of uh, journey. I'm glad you mentioned Elizabeth uh, Gilbert. Um, her great success, uh, particularly with women readers, was um, was the bestseller Eat, Pray, Love, mm -hmm. which I read. Um, the The next book was was an account of um, her her marriage, 
um, which has been a very happy marriage. But to me, it wasn't as as interesting as her the the breakup of the relationship that she described in Eat, Pray, uh, Love. But I think again, it it comes back to uh, what my seventh grade English teacher, Mrs. Battleaxe uh, Battle Armstrong, that's right, said. And that is, uh, you have to, uh, if you want to write, you, you have to uh, read the classics, uh, revise your work, and write about what you know. And um, if, you, if you do, uh, and particularly if you write about what you know, then, um, then each new book should be fresh. But the one thing that, um, that one's readers will, will never forgive you for is writing a dull or bad book. And... I think uh, the, the hardest part for me of undertaking uh, and writing any, any new project is coming up with an idea that I know can be a good book if I get it right. Let's go to Rochester. Dane, good morning. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing, Mark? Good. Good. Hey, I just have a real quick little story uh, about one of Mr. Moser's books. Uh, first of all, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Moser. Thank you. Um, in high school, we were given a you know, just a, a selection of books to read, and I chose one of Mr. Moser's books, and I, you know, I sort of fumbled and stumbled my way through it and reported on it and passed the class, and I never returned the book. And um, <laughs> some years uh, after I got done with college, I, I just happened upon this book, and I picked it up and read it really thoroughly, and it completely changed uh, my relationship with literature and, you know, just the act of reading and you know, searching for knowledge. I just want to let you know that. Well, thank you very much. What a nice story. What was the, which book was it? Uh, it was Disappearances. Okay. That was much, great. That's much better than the, the headline of a, uh, the first big national review of Disappearances, which was my first novel, which read, and I quote, Vermont writers should disappear. <laughs> thank you. We're talking with Howard Frank Mosher. His most recent book is The Great Northern Express, A Writer's Journey Home. Early on in this, Howard, you talk about and reveal your diagnosis with prostate cancer. Were you terrified? Oh, yes. It's absolutely terrified beyond, uh, beyond words, especially since I was expecting, as I do every morning, that I would find in my <laughs> post office box a check for a million dollars. Uh, which is ironical because I think my last royalty check for some back copies of A Stranger in the Kingdom was something like $18.45. But, yes, I was. Uh, however, I had a wonderful uh, oncology team and, um, and doctor, and I immediately went and had uh, 44 radiation treatments. That was five years ago, and the cancer's been in remission ever since. But when I finished uh, the treatment, last uh, session with with the radiation machine coincided with my 65th birthday and the publication this was back in uh, 2007 of my novel on Kingdom Mountain and so to celebrate uh, something that that turned out to be infinitely better than a million dollars which was some more time I decided to uh, to take this great American book tour that I had always wanted to embark on and visit uh, some of the famous independent bookstores in America. And also, uh, I hope this would 
give me a chance to, uh, in between cities and stores, reflect on my life as a writer in the Northeast Kingdom, and uh, and uh, I hope there might be a book in it. And it turned out there was. Speaking of independent bookstores, you and you clearly are a fan of them. You tell this wonderful story. There is one chain bookstore which I noticed you don't even name. Where you uh, w- showed up for a book signing at one of those chain stores, and what happened? Well, as I was um, pulling into the mall where the chain store was uh, was located, and I think this was the only chain bookstore on my itinerary, um, I couldn't find a parking place until I got uh, right up in front of the bookstore, and there was a sign that said uh, book event this afternoon um, Howard Frank Mosier this spot reserved so as I pulled into it in uh, my 1987 Chevy loser cruiser with 280,000 miles on the odometer that that I made this trip in uh, a gentleman in a black suit came running out of the store and he said you can't park there uh, that spot is reserved. Can't you read? Get out of there. He was very exercised. So I, I thought of a number of Northeast Kingdom ways to resolve that, that in there on the spot, but not wanting to write my next book from jail, I decided that I would have some fun instead. So I said to this gentleman who had a big badge on a chain around his neck that said bookstore manager, um, who's the spot reserved for? And he said, well, we're having a very distinguished writer from Vermont here this afternoon, and that's his place. So I was wearing my uh, Northeast Kingdom hunting jacket and my battered old Red Sox cap, and I got back in between the, behind the, the wheel of the falling apart Chevy and said, okay, I'll get right out of here. And I drove around behind the store and parked, took off the hunting jacket and the Red Sox cap and, and walked back to the front of the store. And the guy was standing there looking worriedly at his watch. And I said, um, what's the matter? Uh, isn't your author here yet? And he said, no, sometimes um, these authors don't show up at all. You have no idea how high-handed writers can be. Well, I actually had a pretty good idea how high-handed they could be, but... I, uh, at that point, felt sorry for him, and so I patted him on the shoulder and said, I think your author is going to, is going to show up. And I went into the store, and shortly thereafter, I started my event. Well, the manager came in a few minutes later, and I know he saw me. We made eye contact. I was reading in the front of the store, but he went uh, into the cavernous soulless depths of the back of the chain store and I never saw him again and Mark I'm I'm 99% sure to this day that he never connected me (laughs) with either of the two guys he had met outside (laughs) that was the last last chain store on my visit Uh uh-huh Howard Frank Mosher, the author of The Great Northern Express, 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free, 1-877-291-8255. A quick break. We'll be back in a moment. 
We just reached 185 delivered during the car, truck, and SUV challenge at Lamoille Valley Ford. Hi, I'm Dan Keene, owner of Lamoille Valley. Let me say a huge thanks to Gordon and Sherry Roger of Orange for buying their fourth F-150 at Lamoille Valley Ford. Folks, since I challenged my two dealerships to sell 300 new vehicles by April 30th, business has been crazy. If you're thinking about getting a new car truck, then listen to this. Ford recently announced 0% financing to qualified buyers on 10 of the models we sell at Lamoille Valley Ford, including hot products like Ford Fusion, Escape, and F-150. And right now at Lamoille Valley Ford, we have over 300 new and used vehicles in stock, and we're making deals to reach our goal. Plus, anyone who buys any new vehicle in stock during the car, truck, and SUV challenge at Lamoille Valley Ford will get a $1,000 gas card or additional discount of equal value. So drive Route 14, 15, or 16 to Lamoille Valley Ford in Hardwick. Get a great deal during the car, truck, and SUV challenge happening right now at Lamoille Valley Ford. Hi, this is Greg Haskin. I'm President and Chief Executive Officer of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom. We have a set of core values at Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom. The most important one to us is customer delight. That doesn't happen by accident. It's very important to me to have employees, managers, and supervisors that are what I like to call the experts in their field. When you combine all those talents together, you have a company that can accomplish pretty much anything. Through our marketing department, we query our customers several times a year, find out what's on their mind, and basically find out how we're doing in their minds. The feedback is critical to knowing what direction the company should be going in. If anything should escalate to where the customer is not satisfied, they definitely can come and talk to me or call me at any time. The pride of the past, the best of the future, it's right here at home. Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom, building tomorrow's broadband network today. WCVT.com since 1904. Looking for a cost-effective way to get your message and image before the public? This is John at Always On Time Signs and Designs. We make attractive, well-designed signage in a variety of forms. This is Steve with in-house sign design for everything from traditional business signs to vehicle lettering and even full vehicle wraps. Your image will be seen and remembered by thousands. The variety we offer with fast turnaround is limited only by your imagination. Banners, in-store floor and window graphics, and even special event items like trade show tablecloths. Bring your ideas to us. Whatever your budget is, we can help you accomplish your marketing goals at Always On Time, Signs and Designs. Your order will be done on time, on budget, every time. Call us at 223-8948 or toll free from anywhere at 1-800-547-0808. Always On Time, Signs and Designs, 115 Industrial Lane, Berlin. 223-8948 or 1-800-547-0808. Back, continue our discussion this morning with Howard Frank Mosher, the author of The Great Northern Express, A Writer's Journey Home. And uh, we want to remind you, too, 244-1777 is our local number. Toll free, you can reach us at 1-877-291-8255. Clearly, this 100-city book tour was a journey not only to sell books, but was also your way of processing and dealing with this whole prostate cancer. I'm going to make people buy the book to find out what all five lessons were that you learned on this journey about how to deal with cancer, but tell us one of them. Well, I found that in in my instance, having uh, what one critic once called a lunatic sense of, of humor, that uh, probably what was most helpful to me was still being able to laugh at uh, everything uh, 
connected with a cancer that's easier to do when you have early stage cancer than when um, you have six months to live. But I found that uh, anything I could do to uh, retain my my sense of humor was very, very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Let's take a call from Hyde Park. Good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning, Mark and, and uh, Mr. Moser. Uh, question question on distribution on some of I noticed most of your books aren't available on as ebook versions. Is that a personal choice or something with the publishers? Well, um, the the latest um, past three I think are um, are available on on ebooks, and we've had offers for some of the others in. Um, in this business, it's a, it's the business of novel writing. It's essential to to have a very good and shrewd literary agent, and and I do. And he's <laughs> frankly waiting until uh, the right ebook publisher makes the the right offer. Authors don't make as much from from ebooks as they do from regular book sales, but it's important to to have your backlist on uh, available electronically and um, we've been slowly making those those deals I wouldn't know how to go about making any kind of deal in this business including just a standard contract with a regular publisher but that's where my agent comes in you spoke earlier about one of the lessons you learned about writing from the the battle acts that you write about what you know I'd love to have you again share with us and read a section of your book where you talk about Cody, who was a student that you met early on in your career. And when you came to Orleans, you and Phyllis came there and taught school. You taught English. And Cody was one of your students who, the, my recollection is, I think it was the first day that you were teaching that he asked to borrow your car. So tell us first the story about what he did with your car. Well, it was my first day of teaching. And as I say in the Great Northern Express, I, I cannot once again believe that I was naive enough to uh, toss my car keys to a young man who had been described to me as a juvenile delinquent. He said he had an emergency at home, and a few minutes later during my first class, one of the students said, Mr. Mosier, Mr. Mosier, uh, you know that kid Cody that you loaned your car to just before class? He's he's driving it in front of the down in front of the school about sixty miles an hour, and as I rush to the window to see this spectacle, the student said in reverse, and Cody was he may not have been going quite sixty, but he was going fast. So this is um, <clears throat> the section about um, the uh, composition that that Cody wrote for me and what became of Cody. The best student composition I received that year came from the worst-behaved kid. That, of course, was Cody, who lived with his mom and little sister in a rusty house trailer slumped in the woods miles from anywhere. He'd been in and out of reform school for years and had Northeast Kingdom outlaw written all over him. Long hair several years before it became fashionable, a small but fiercely loyal gang of like-minded disciples, a 
mouth on him you'd have to hear to believe. He called me Teach, and despite the little incident with my station wagon on the first day of school, I liked him from the start. Cody had a pet raccoon named Budweiser, Bud for short, who followed him around like a dog. Bud would come barreling into our apartment, yank open the refrigerator door, sweep everything off the shelves onto the floor, and bare his sharp white teeth and growl if you tried to interfere. Bud was a very large raccoon, and I doubted he'd had his shots. I didn't interfere. A year before Phyllis and I arrived in the kingdom, Cody and the assistant principal got into it over Cody sneaking Bud into school. The assistant principal, a former leatherneck, told Cody to back off or else. Cody laughed and decked him. The only positive thing I ever heard anyone say about this kid was that he was good to his sister. As a toddler, she'd been struck in the head by a heavy wooden swing seat, leaving her with irreversible brain damage. Cody ate lunch with his sister, sat next to her on the bus, and generally looked out for her, more like a father than an older brother. Still, he was the student I worried most about. As the Thanksgiving break approached, I was desperate to get something, anything, in the way of a written assignment from Cody. Finally, I asked him if he'd ever considered writing about Budweiser. Teach, he said, I never considered writing about nothing. A day or two later, to my surprise, he handed me an essay on old Bud. Cody told how he had found the little guy in the road trying to nurse from his dead mother. He fed the baby raccoon from a doll's bottle and raised him like a house cat, a 30-pound house cat with a mean streak. It was a wonderful composition. Next, he turned to chronicling his life of crime, an essay that could have landed him back in the reformatory for years. Then Cody wrote about the adults he'd like to beat up. It was a long list. In early December, Cody announced that he and his mom and sister were moving to New Hampshire. On his last day at Orleans High School, he gave me not a composition, but a letter beginning, Dear Teach. It was about his sister. He described what it would be like to be teased by classmates behind in school, constantly challenged by simple tasks. He told me how his sister might be able to lead a fairly normal life and what their working mom had sacrificed to nurture that hope. He did not mention himself, though he was probably more responsible than anyone else for his sister's progress in school. It was the best student essay I've ever read before or since, but Cody's story didn't end there. Some 20 years later, Mark, I lost my place, and I'm going to have to open my book up quickly. Some 20 years later, a tall, distinguished man with a touch of gray in his longish hair showed up at our door. He was wearing a suit and tie, but I recognized him immediately. I was on my way home from a conference in Montreal, Cody said. I thought I'd stop by and say hello. 
Cody came in. I half expected old Budweiser to shamble through the doorway after him and make straight for the refrigerator and sat down at the kitchen table. He handed me a card with his name printed on it, and below that, his title. He was the superintendent of a large school system in Rhode Island. Well, I said, how did this happen? After I got out of the service and got my degree, I taught special ed for six years, he said. I was director of special education services for three years, and I've been superintendent of schools in the same district for the past decade. I'm going to put this card up on my refrigerator, I told him. Cody grinned at me. Hey, Teach, he said. Can I borrow your car? I've got a little emergency at home that I need to take care of. What a great story. Howard Frank Mosher is the author of The Great Northern Express. How did you hook up with filmmaker Jay Craven? Well, uh, Jay, uh, who, um, uh, like me, has lived... um, almost all his adult life in the in the Northeast Kingdom, was originally interested in um, filming disappearances. He had made some wonderful documentaries, and we were, were never able to get together at that point uh, with, uh, with disappearances. The, another filmmaker had the option um, to that story, but Jay made a marvelous... Uh, short movie of my short story High Water, which appears in the collection Where the Rivers Flow North, and uh, I was so impressed by the movie that we've continued working together. He then made uh, Where the Rivers Flow North with uh, Rip Torn and the wonderful Native American actress Tantu Cardinal and Michael J. Fox, and from there um, A Stranger in the Kingdom with Martin Sheen, and then uh, disappearances, more recently with uh, Chris Christofferson, who does a wonderful job as the, the um, protagonist, um, Quebec Bill Benome, the professional uh, prohibition era whiskey runner. And I'm, I'm very happy to tell um, you and your listeners, Mark, that um, even as we speak, Jay Craven is now filming in Vermont what's my favorite of my novels, and that is um, Northern Borders, the story of the little boy who goes to live with his misanthropic grandparents in 1948. As you say in the the subtitle here, Howard, that this is a writer's journey home, so uh, at the risk of asking you sort of too heavy a question, so what would you learn on the journey? Well, I think I, I may not have learned awful lot uh, but I <laughs> think I, I reaffirmed for myself that um, when when Phyllis and I not only came here to the Northeast Kingdom more or less by chance but uh, decided very deliberately to, to stay here and make this wonderful uh, part of the country our home and uh, write its stories, that that was the right choice. You know, there were many times when I was uh, clerking in stores after I left teaching, but still needed some kind of day job to support my writing and working in the woods for old horse loggers and working on farms when uh, at the end of the day I would say to myself, Howard Frank Mosier, 
what have you done with your with your life? But I think one part of me knew even then that what I was doing was gathering the material, slowly accumulating the stories of the Northeast Kingdom, and um, beginning that that long apprenticeship. I mentioned it took me 15 years after I got here to publish my first story and more than that before I published my first book but uh, I don't know how much faith I had in myself I had an awful lot of faith in the stories of the Northeast Kingdom and the people of this part of Vermont as I mentioned at the beginning there I think you really write about the kingdom in a way that's not condescending has anybody up there ever thought that you're misportraying it, oversimplifying it, that kind of thing? I don't I don't think anyone I can't recall that, that anyone has um, thought that I that I was condescending. Um, you know for for one thing I think uh, since Phyllis and I began here as teachers and my writing career evolved only after that that many people still continue to think of us as the kids who came here from New York State uh, almost fifty years ago, and somewhat incidentally, uh, I began to write the stories. Uh, some of my stories have, have not always made my neighbors happy, and um, Phyllis, when I published um, Stranger in the Kingdom, and uh, said that, that people would, would probably be upset by my writing about this, um, this race incident that had happened just up the street from our house in Irisburg, I, I said, everybody's going to be angry. And Phyllis said, that's right, sweetie, and that's one reason you have to write it. That's number one. Number two is they'll get over it. <laughs> and she was right in both cases. And your health is good? My health is good. Thank you. I've embarked on uh, two new novels, both uh, sequels to A Stranger in the Kingdom, and I'm in the middle of another big book tour for the Great Northern Express, and visiting all the independent bookstores I can find. What a treat. Thank you for your time this morning. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Mark, for your good questions, as always. Howard Frank Mosher is the author of The Great Northern Express, A Writer's Journey Home. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush and AM 550 WDEV Waterbury, Montpelier. Clean, renewable energy made right here in Vermont. We all want it, but how do we get it?